I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, freelance journalist Bertrand Cooper joins us to discuss the Black Poor, which he was part of growing up, and his recent piece in The Atlantic entitled The Failure of Affirmative Action. That Atlantic piece got Bertrand appearances in such media outlets as MSNBC and Slate. And in case you're wondering, no, Bertrand is not making the type of argument made by conservative figures like Thomas Sowell when it comes to affirmative action. But we'll get into all of that during the conversation to follow. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Bertrand Cooper. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really happy to be speaking with, uh, Bertrand Cooper, who is the author of a number of articles in places ranging from the New York Times, The Atlantic, Current Affairs, a number of other places as well. But he has an article that caught my eye uh, a while back, uh, like, you know, about two months ago, entitled The Failure of Affirmative Action for the Atlantic. And we're going to talk about that and some of the sort of bigger picture issues that Bertrand focuses on beyond that article. But uh, how are you doing? Good. Yeah. Happy to be here. Um, definitely happy that, you know, <laughs> uh, interest moves fast and um, people are still talking about the piece for affirmative action. Well, you were on MSNBC talking about it a while back, right? <laughs> yeah, I got to be on MSNBC, which was... Uh, just completely unexpected. Um, 
yeah. I mean, a lot of times I just think like I'm writing in, you know, into the ether for a small number of uh, folks who care about these class issues, but um, the response was pretty big and it was, um, it was cool to be on there. Um, it was also interesting just to kind of jump into it. Uh, anyone who saw me on MSNBC that day, you know, the lead up to me was, you know, a series of interviews with um, teachers, other students, mostly, you know, uh, black folks and, you know, poor black people were the people brought up by everyone. You know, the first mention was that this was going to uh, really hurt poor black people, this being um, the removal of affirmative action or race conscious policies from higher ed admissions. Um, that removal was going to hurt poor black folks. And that was the lead into me. So, um, almost surreal because you know in the past would have had to listen to people say these things but i wouldn't have been in a platform to respond and now is finally in this moment to say uh, i disagree with all of that so let's get into that uh you wrote it shortly before the affirmative action decision with the supreme court uh so what what other than the supreme court decision why did you feel like i'm going to write about this and and you know just talk about the the sort of driving motivations for you so, you know, trying to think of the best way to condense it, the affirmative action piece can really be thought of as just um, a slice of my class critique. Uh, you know, the background to this is that um, I'm 35. I grew up predominantly in the 90s. I'm black and white. I was poor on both sides of my family, at least a generation before I came about. And you know, for anyone close to my age during the 90s, definitely older than me, people who grew up in the 80s or 70s, um, class in Black America is just known. And it's really the substance of most of our pop culture. Um, even people who are, you know, maybe they only saw Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in the 90s. Seeing Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, those jokes don't make sense unless you understand class, unless you get why you know, Carlton is different than Will Smith. It's just there all the time. And I'm growing up in a part of South Jersey that is, you know, poor, working class. Anyone else who's mixed, they're also black and white. So it's kind of like I'm embedded in this world where everyone knows how black class works. Everyone's got kind of the same awareness as me. And when I'm watching television, I'm thinking that's the education source for most other Americans. So they're all getting the same information as me. Flash forward to 2014, I'm going to graduate school, and it's the first time that I've really been secluded in folks coming from solidly middle class or better. You know, these are small classrooms, small seminar classrooms of 10 to 12 students. There might be three other black kids in the class with me. And I was going to say, I, I think you've talked about this elsewhere, but yeah. the odds of them coming from the same background as you, even those black students, is like basically astronomically low right yeah it's effectively zero and you know the funny thing about it is that this is when i get to come in contact with and i don't know the right name for this phenomena yet but it's um these two things happening in people's minds at the same time you know it's 2014 ferguson is in its second wave raging on um on the one hand, everybody has gotten the memo that you're not supposed to say all black people are poor anymore. 
you're not supposed to even suggest it through like veils. You can't say urban. You can't say any of that. You're supposed to verbalize that you know that Black Americans have class and they don't all come from poverty. At the same time, we were, you know, statistics of oppression are in full swing. So anytime you're reading The Atlantic, reading The New York Times, you might come across a stat that says um, only one out of every 10 low income students is graduating from uh, college with a four year degree, which is a way of saying the other 90 percent you know, of poor students are not obtaining a bachelor's degree. And if you're anywhere left of center, you read that and you're like, yeah, this completely gels with my understanding of America. That's just one more statistic showing you that poor people aren't doing well. But then people move past the statistics and that awareness to talking about what's going on with the black experience and class just vanishes. So all those black, you know, those other three black students in the graduate course with me, once we're done mentioning the actual statistics, they'll be saying, you know, my people, we as a people, class disappears from the other Black students' language, even though based on the statistics that we just talked about, they can't all be from poverty. And so people have this weird way of conceptualizing class in Black America that's very different from white America. With white Americans, we know, like, we keep that class structure very rigid. We know that when we talk about opioid crises, uh, crises in white trailer parks, we're not talking about something that filters up to the middle and upper class of white America, not commonly. When we're thinking about which white students are getting to Harvard, um, we know that race is not a barrier for white students. We understand that class is going to be the barrier, and we know not to expect a bunch of poor white kids at Harvard. Over in Black America, on the one hand, we can say not all Black people are poor, but we don't think Black poverty really has this sort of isolating factor that keeps the black class separate from the rest of black people. So just seeing black students at Harvard makes you think, oh, black poor are getting something out of this. All this comes together with, you know, if you're in education circles, you were expecting affirmative action to be pulled back in higher ed. I knew that people were going to be assessing what we might call the affirmative action era 1978 to, you know, 2023. Affirmative action specifically for higher ed where the Supreme Court said that, you know, race conscious admission policies were OK. And I knew that in assessing that. Um, people were going to jump to saying what affirmative action did for poor black people without actually looking at the numbers. So um, in talks with The Atlantic, this was an opportunity for me to use a moment when everyone was going to be thinking about the legacy of affirmative action to say this policy did several things for middle and upper class black people, but it specifically did not help the black poor. And we can demonstrate this really clearly in data using statistics that just a year ago, all of you were nodding along to when you saw it printed in the New York Times. I was going to ask you, maybe you could get more into the, the sort of raw data that you referenced through the article, just for um, my audience, just to fill them in. Sure. So one of the tricky things, first off, if you're going to talk about the poor, you got to have kind of a standard definition on, you know, one thing unfortunate things about being a, a researcher in poverty is that poor is also used as just an everyday adjective. We will say we are poorer than somebody else. Well, I was going to say there's even like a difference between, you know, like poverty and like really abject poverty that, you know, they're treated yeah. as two different things. So all the research that you see quoted in any newspaper or magazine that's talking about the poor is normally going to be doing one of two things. It's either going to be talking about people who are beneath the federal poverty line, 
which gets adjusted on a yearly basis due to inflation for your audience, you know, that year or this year, families of four in poverty is people making less than $30,000 a year. Um, you have to be beneath that number to be counted as poor, um, to be, you know, federally poor. And um, an interesting thing is kind of to make it to the next class, you have to double your income. So right now to be solidly middle of the middle, you would have to make $60,000 a year. To just get into the upper class of America, which is the top 20%, you'd have to make over like $120,000 a year. And this pattern stays pretty consistent where to make it out of the class you're born into, you, you normally have to double, in some cases, triple your parents' income. So these are really big economic distances. Now, if we're just looking at the black poor, these families that are listed as federally poor, or another way to look at them is bottom 20% of the income distribution, we can look at the rate that they go to college. Now, unfortunately, most of this education research doesn't separate by race. So you just have to do class averages that lump all the races together. Um, but the National Center for Education Statistics, which is backed by the U.S. Census, they've been saying for a long time that only one out of every 10 low-income high school students obtains a bachelor's degree. Assuming that the black poor have those very same numbers, they would be saying only one out of every 10 of the black poor are obtaining a bachelor's degree. And those were the numbers while affirmative action was in effect. So just broadly, for the whole United States, whatever affirmative action higher ed was adding to, the result was that for poor Black kids, 90% of them were not going to obtain a bachelor's degree. Um, there is something of a caste element to consider here that I think makes the point more severe. Um, at different intervals, we've checked how many of the Black poor um, outdo their parents. And pretty much since William Julius Wilson, who wrote The Declining Significance of Race or When Work Disappears, which is a book that inspired The Wire, um, one of the seasons of The Wire, since he first did it in, I want to say it was like 1978, looking at just after the civil rights, normally what you find is of all the black folks born poor, something more than 60% of them stay poor as adults. So when you're talking about poor black millennials or poor black Gen Z, most of them are going to be second generation poor, if not third generation poor. So big picture looking at affirmative action from 1978 to 2003, we're seeing a situation where 90% of the black poor are not obtaining bachelor's degrees. And it is the same families again and again and again who are not obtaining bachelor's degrees. And this is all happening under affirmative action. Um, when you get specifically to higher ed, this is where you find a lot of things that most people are unaware of. First off, race conscious admissions were not a federal mandate. Every college was not required to do it. What they were told was, if your admissions are so competitive that you're actually ending up with students who are tied along every important act academic criterion, you could use race as a tiebreaker. There's only maybe 100 universe. This is, um, I want to say it's a New York Times piece by Sean Reardon, who's done a lot on... Um, income segregation neighborhoods. I believe he's the one who did this. Um, I can get it to you later if you want to uh, have the, what's it, the source for your audience. But um, 
only like a hundred schools are competitive enough to where they actually had to use race conscious admissions. And in total, if you added up all the non, non-white groups, so I don't just mean black students. I mean, if you had a black, Asian, Hispanic students, indigenous as well, there were only about 10,000 of this non-white, non-white group each year who were going to college just because of race conscious admissions. And almost none of them were coming from poverty. So when you separate out that 10,000 group into just the black students, and then you separate them by class, Harvard actually had a team of economists do this a few years ago. They were interested in knowing how many of Harvard students come from poverty. Um, when they did it first in the early 2000s, it was only about 3 to 5% of their incoming freshmen each year came from poor families. Um, a few years later, it was like 5 to 7%. Right now, Harvard has perfect black representation because they don't consider class. But if you look at the 154 so or so students that they let in each year as freshmen, about seven of them will come from poor black families. The others will come from the middle and upper class. Um, and specifically, they're drawn, uh, overdrawn from the wealthiest subset of black Americans, which is normally uh, first and second generation black immigrants. I was going to say, too, uh... I've also read from sociological research, and I don't know if this has changed recently, that the like outcomes for people that go to college can even differ on, say, you know, if you're first generation of your family going into college, uh, you don't have that sort of understanding of the sort of hidden curriculum um, when it comes to higher ed. And, you know, I've I've read that people who are second or third generation going into college. So their parents or their grandparents went, you know, they actually have better outcomes um, than people who are just, you know, the first in their family to go. Um, Yeah, that is. So something else that makes like broad statements here tricky and always important to keep, you know, in mind with education is that um, U.S., education is very, very dominated by the reality reality of us having states. So there ends up being very few things that are perfectly true across all the states. But to your specific point, when that's been examined, most of the time what you're saying, that is what people find, that when you're second or third generation, that implies that you already have this kind of built-in social uh, network, this already built-in capital almost to the point that where you go to college ends up mattering less and you can go anywhere. One way that uh, folks study this, and it may be one of the papers that you've seen because it got a lot of news coverage, was they followed people who applied to Ivy League schools, the most elite ones, you know, uh, your Columbia's, your Harvard's, your Princeton's, and they followed the group that didn't get in. And by the time that group was in their 30s, they were still making essentially the same money that their peers who got in made. And um, something that some folks have pointed out, I always mess up his last name, even though we're friends, but uh, his name's Tade uh, Suwani. Um, but uh, he's a population geneticist. Something he's pointed out is that when we were um, first getting those numbers, you know, that they used to tell us about how much going to college adds to your total life earnings, they weren't accounting for social um, capital. So they were looking at these students in the 70s and 80s, and they were completely ignoring the fact that back then, the only people who went and got bachelor's degrees were primarily people who were already upper middle and upper class. And they assumed all of the money they made over their lifetime 
was connected to their college degree and not into those built-in social networks. So that whole idea that, you know, getting a bachelor's degree, you'll earn an extra million dollars a year. It's like, eh, I'm not million dollars a year, but million dollars over your working lifetime. That's kind of predicated on you having this social network. For the first generation students you're talking about, um, they do tend to make more money than not going. But I think when they get into it, um, it's much more varied. It's not the same experience that the second and third generation college kids have. So what was the reaction, I guess, that you got to the Atlantic article? I mean, obviously, you uh, got to go on MSNBC, and there were people that were interested in sort of engaging with your argument. Uh, were all the responses to it positive? Were there people that were you know, misinterpreting what you were saying or uh, acting in bad faith when they responded to it? Or So... I would say the response skewed positive. Um, the folks, I think it, there's, it's really interesting to pay attention to the negative responses or even the people who want to provide some pushback. Um, uh, for example, your audience, you know, if they want to get a live example of this pushback, I was just on a podcast, Hear Me Out, it's free, with Slate Magazine, and that had the first debate format that I've done um, in a number of years. But um, what you'll see in the negative responses is that nobody, people want to disagree with me. They don't know how to do it, though. And what I mean by that is they'll say a sentence along the lines of, but affirmative action helped black people. Or things were so, yeah, they'll be sarcastic. Yeah, things were so much better for black college students before affirmative action. Uh, real and quick, I was going to say, th that's interesting to me because you're not really saying in that article that affirmative action didn't help certain black people. You're saying it didn't help the black poor, which is a way more specific issue. And that, yeah, you nailed it. That's the hard part is that people are so used to treating. It's almost like adding poor to black is redundant. They are so used to treating black poor and black people or black poor and black experience as interchangeable that no matter how many times I emphasize, I'm talking about 20% of the uh, black population and their experience over the last you know 40 or 50 years, people hear me and they hear me say that and they think I'm talking about black people broadly. And you know I have to try and spell out for people in a number of ways that class is real in black America. And that almost ends up, it starts feeling like I'm trying to convince them of opinions that they claim to already have, you know, going back to what I said previously, every uh, person left of center will tell you that they know not all black people are poor, but it's kind of like, they don't really know what that means because in their mind, um, everything that happens to poor black people happens to black people broadly. They never really see these, um, uh, Part of that is because they never actually get to witness black intraracial class comparisons where you compare one black class to another black class. Um, you won't see that in racial wealth gap conversations popularized by William Sandy Doherty. You won't see it in our incarceration rates. Um, even when researchers print it, they won't draw any attention to it. Um, something that I believe I got to mention the Atlantic piece comes from uh, Professor William Sandy Doherty's research and his graphs. 
Um, he is Sandy Darity for people that don't know, by the way, he's a big proponent of, um, reparations. I've had him on the show before, but go on. If you have read anything about the racial wealth gap, it's almost guaranteed that you've been reading his research, which I had absolutely no issue with. It's almost always him and his uh, collaborator, Derek Hamilton. Um, but when you look at his research, one of the things he never mentions that's completely visible in the exact same graphs is that when you compare the bottom 20% of black folks to the upper 20% of black folks, the upper 20% of black America has over 3000 times the median wealth of the black poor. And just to put that in perspective, if you do the very same comparison on the white side, the white upper class has maybe 20 to 24 times, depending on the year, the median wealth. So the, the wealth gap between black Americans at the top and bottom is around 60 times larger than the white gap. And so if the white wealth gap concerns you, and based on Occupy Wall Street, the rise of Bernie Sanders, it concerns a lot of people, the black wealth gap should also be worth mentioning. But I've had a conversation with, um, you know, Professor Dougherty before, only on Twitter, um, where, you know, he said that he's never denied that this gap existed, to which I mentioned him, I know you've never denied it, you just don't draw any attention to it. And he told me more or less, that's because it's distracting when the white black disparity is, you know, so great. So um, even the people producing this research just are not interested in, you know, this fine grained class analysis. Um, And I find that to be an issue. uh, Yeah, I was gonna ask you, so like, how would you respond to what Darity was saying there. Well, that's distraction from the the white-black um, I- I- income gap. Yeah, what I would say is, you know, I think if you're anywhere, again, left of center, what you've learned is that trickle-down economics uh, are a farce. They don't work. Um, and in the same way that the wealth of the white upper class is not something that the white poor can borrow from, um, it's going to work the same way for black Americans. And we get to see this with affirmative action. There isn't any trickle down. So the more, you know, upper class black folks who are allowed into Harvard, that doesn't necessarily improve the situation of the black poor. And in fact, looking at these college numbers, uh, it verifiably has not. Um, and so what I would say to, you know, Darity and others is just that, It is inconceivable to me that we could improve the economic situation of the black poor without explicitly acknowledging that they have a unique economic problem. And we don't really want to do that. We want race only solutions. So, um, you know, we've had affirmative action. We push for affirmative action. We had it for year after year after year. And at no point did people start saying Obviously, some people said I shouldn't be hyperbolic, but there wasn't this big outcry that said, "Okay, this policy has really helped the black middle and the black upper class. We now need to append something to it so that it can start benefiting, you know, the black poor. Because um, if I've got two black students both applying to get to Harvard and one of them has 3000 times the wealth of the other, that's not really a level playing field that discussion did not happen. And now with affirmative action removed, it's still not happening. No one's 
there's a few people, I'm one of them, I can think of a few other people, but there isn't a major awareness of how affirmative action let down the black poor. So the fight now is to reinstate something that just broadly considers diversity from the race perspective and diversity initiatives. They don't care where you get the bodies from in terms of class. So what, I mean, I know, I know you're not making policy here. You're, you're sort of offering a critique, but, but in the future, if we wanted to create policies that were truly beneficial um, to people across different classes within black America, or, or just to help people that come from, you know, disadvantaged backgrounds economically in general, uh, what direction could we go in with that? What are some possible solutions? Um, well, I, I don't have, let's see. The first thing I'll, I'll start coming from my field. I, I belong. And I wouldn't say that we're a group, but there are people in education theory policy who are just optimistic that the school can say, you know, can solve every problem. When you're looking at um, historians of public education in the U.S., there are many people, um, David Lavery comes to mind, who will say that, you know, to deal with the problems of capitalism, Europe chose a strong social safety net. America chose the school. And over the decades, every time we face a new social issue, we're just like, well, how can we use the school as the way to fix that? Even down to people need more food. Well, can we distribute those meals through the school? And you don't have to. You don't have to pick the school as the way of fixing everything. And at this point, you know, we want the school to compensate for parents not having jobs, for there not being enough food in the house, to compensate for the fact that, you know, companies don't want to have to train their own employees. They want all the training to have in school. We just every year add on to what we want schools to do. Um, and then in the form of higher education, we were just expecting colleges to fix you know, 12 years of education-based deficits by, you know, creating more access. So I'm on the side that says the school is probably overloaded. And if it was to be effective at any of these things, we actually need to take some things off of its plate. Um, in terms of solutions beyond that, I probably don't have anything too interesting or novel to say. I would mostly be focused on housing um, and jobs. Uh, I mean, the two things that seem to best ameliorate poverty are either having, you know, steady access to a living wage um, and consistent housing. I'm a big fan of uh, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, that showed the role that, you know, unstable housing um, plays in, you know, perpetuating poverty. Uh, the actual poverty measure that we use, the OPM, um, that was founded by Molly Oshansky and her thinking was like, you know, food is the most basic necessity you can have. So she was really thinking about at what point do people have to um, stop feeding themselves in order to pay rent? And really food was the dominant, you know, focus there and the basis of everything. But, you know, looking at uh, Matthew Desmond's work and where housing fits into basic necessities right now among food, clothing, and shelter, 
we have a lot of poor people who are paying between 60 to 80% of all the income that they have going in just to stay housed, which means they're a constant threat of being evicted. Once they have one eviction, they're basically, it's very hard to show up to work if you're in the midst of finding new housing. It's very hard to shop around for your best deal if you are trying to keep your kids from being homeless for a night. Um, and then eviction can work similarly to the ways that a conviction record does. It bars you from a ton of other government-based housing programs, just further increasing your chance of being evicted again. Um, and if we want to tie this back to school, you know, people are always focused uh, recently on how, say, testing is connected to uh, parental income. But anyone who works in education, at least on the theory side, I will tell you every metric of academic performance is connected to your parents' income. In the case of housing, we should be thinking of GPA as kind of like running a marathon. GPA is, you know, that is, were you able to turn work in on time consistently for four years? That is very hard to do if you're moving from house to house, motel to motel. Sometimes you're in a homeless shelter, sometimes you're not. Um, Housing also ties into like, do you have access to a computer? I mean, um, at this point, so many things are based off internet access and, uh, you know, the digital divide, that was a hot topic maybe 10, 15 years ago. Nobody writes about it, but it still exists. So um, being very long winded here, but I would say housing or employment are probably the places to focus our energies for dealing with um, poverty. Also, just as a democratic society or one that aspires to be. If you're talking about poor people and you, uh, you know, you believe in self-determination, you believe that people should have a say in, you know, the solutions to their political problems. If you talk to most poor people, they're going to name um, jobs and housing right at the top of their list of what they would like the focus to be. I hope this isn't too strange of a question, but I, I also wanted to get into how we define what it means to be poor, because. I, I think there are people that don't really understand what that means um, or because I know people that, you know, will make, uh, you know, like above 70K a year and, and just by themselves and think that they're struggling on the level of poverty. And I'm not sure that that's really, you know, I, I think people don't have a good idea of what it actually means to be poor is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, so this, <laughs> uh, very likely will be, you know, I have a book proposal that I'm in the midst of, there's been a lot of good responses to my work and just defining poverty and coming, you know, trying to help people arrive at a shared definition of that is such a big part of the work, but, you know, just to lay out a content, some of the context here, cause I'm stumbling over my words because what you're bringing up is just so important. A big one is this, you know. You can go all the way through your K through 12 education and then through college, and you will never get instruction in class demography in the U.S. You will not learn um, what separates our income classes. You won't learn how many people live in each income class. You won't learn the definition of poverty. And yet the thing that you have the most power to vote on on a daily, not daily, but, you know, on a monthly, weekly, yearly basis is going to relate to poverty. Like you're going to have more say over housing laws in your neighborhood than almost anything else. Um, you're constantly going to be dealing with how taxes are distributed for schools. 
all things that relate to poverty and you have almost no education in it. So to give some context here, Americans do not like to say how much money is enough money. And that has been a problem for a very long time. Um, it was a problem all the way going back to Molly Oshansky, who came up with the definition of poverty. And she even has a quote where she says, you know, if it's impossible to say how much is enough, it should at least be possible to say how much is too little. And, you know, the person that you're thinking of who has $70,000 a year, but they're still struggling, depending on where they move, maybe they wouldn't be struggling. There's a lot of nuances here. There's yeah, also- I was going to say in some areas, only having 70K could be very difficult. You know? Yeah. So when we think of poverty and its goal, ignoring its political aspirations, anything it could do, um, and I'll get to that in a second. If we're thinking about it purely in terms of a taxonomy and you're trying to come up with a term where everyone in this group has more in common with each other than they have with people outside of it, focusing on biological necessities is going to do the best for any statistician. Because So we're talking food, water, shelter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the a very strong case to make for medical care, but we can say you know, without a doubt that the amount of calories that a person needs to stave off biological decline is going to be the same in New Jersey. It's going to be the same in California. It's going to be roughly the same in India. Starvation, because we are all one species, has these very hard biological constraints. Um, The temperature at which most humans are going to enter heat stroke, the temperature at which they're going to feel hypothermia, These are all constants. And most people who research poverty have tried to focus on the biological necessities and at what point you cannot afford them. And what people need to understand about all the poverty research that they've ever heard is that these researchers are mostly talking about people who cannot afford biological necessities without government help. So all the people who are poor, the 38 million Americans who count as poor right now, these are people who without help are going to be choosing between food, clothing, and shelter. Medical care is not even on the table. That is their daily existence. Now, if you can afford food, clothing, and shelter, um, you are not having the experience that the 38 million poor Americans are having. Now, that doesn't mean that your life is good by any stretch of the imagination, but you are not experiencing the specific type of suffering that all of these people in this group are having. Now, when you get into political concerns, um, I don't know if all countries are like this, but in America, it is very difficult to get people to care about an issue unless you can tether it somehow to the imprisonment or destruction of bodies. You need stats showing that people are suffering in the worst possible way, or apparently you just can't get activism to work. So there are a lot of people who want to expand the definition of poverty um, in various ways so that it includes people who are making 40, 50, 60 thousand dollars a year. You also see this sometimes with the idea of working class where um, it's getting expanded a lot. Uh, You know, the American Enterprise Institute, 
which is a conservative thinking tank, they were willing to expand it up to about $70,000 a year for working class and say anyone who makes up to that and doesn't have a college degree can be considered working class. Um, there was a Jacobin article that wanted to make it just your relationship to the means of production. So even if you were making $100,000, $110,000 a year, but you don't own the business, willing to call you working class as well. Um, and this is creating classes mostly for political utility. Uh, we want all these people thought of poor or working class because that puts a lot of pressure to create um, or to expand the social safety net. But it loses the taxonomy part because I guarantee you that you know a family of three living on $15,000 a year in Philadelphia is having a different material reality than a family earning $70,000 a year in the same city. And that would be true in LA. LA is a very expensive city. And there are other things to consider here. Um, you've probably seen a lot of this work on the, say, the meritocracy trap, or um, I believe his name's like Matthew Stewart. Like there are middle-class folks are feeling pinched because they know that to maintain, for their children to maintain their status costs a lot of money. So Right, and they could very easily fall down the quicksand, so to speak, you know. Exactly. If they can't afford the right schools, if they can't afford the right neighborhoods. Um, so their position is not secure. Their ability to guarantee their children will have the same position is not secure. Um, right now, we just haven't figured out a way to hold these two, you know, these nuances all together that, yes, financially, you are struggling to maintain status for your children. And yet, this is a different type of struggle than starving. I, I'm curious to what you think. I know I don't know if you had this response from from some people, but the thing I always hear now when certain people bring up class is they get accused of um, reducing everything to class or class reductionism. Um, so, what do you say to people that try to make that argument? That almost it seems like anytime you bring up class, there will be someone saying, "Well, that's class reductionist." My response right now, because um, not a lot of people make how I put it. Uh, I think we should all <laughs> be more forthright about the gamesmanship that happens in these political circles, and the fact that the identities you bring to the table alter what arguments people are comfortable making at you. So I'm very upfront about my background. It is very hard for a lot of other, you know, card carrying liberals and leftists to say to somebody like myself, somebody who comes from foster care and homelessness and poverty, hey, you're being a class reductionist. It's not the first argument they want to make to somebody who's come up from poverty, but I do see the argument all the time and I will have to confront it at some point. And I think what I would say is this, you, um, and your audience may already know this, you know, we have the class reductionist uh, insult. We also have the race reductionist insult. Um, if your concern is poverty, I think the tack I would take is this. By any definition of racism that is circulating among those left of center right now, whether they are liberal, uh, progressive, radical left, all of those definitions of racism say 
that white people cannot experience racism. That's something that unifies them. White people still have poverty despite their inability to experience racism. So as a matter of verifiable fact, even the absence of racism does not cure poverty. So I think for me, that just puts a limit on any pure race-based solution to poverty. We already know that white people are not suffering uh, from racism based on these definitions, assuming you accept one of them. And yet we're still going to have, you know, some 30 million white people living in poverty. I was going to ask too, and I'm, I'm trying to think of how to word this, but um, how important do you think discussing class in relation uh, to the black American experience is when it comes to maybe countering um, sort of rising political factions within black America, uh, black America. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking of things like, you know, I've seen a trend of, of a lot of people starting to get into this whole ADOS thing. And ADOS to me is just like really built not on issues of class, but on this really, you know, icky sort of anti-immigrant um, mentality. Do you think looking at class more helps counter uh, those sort of rightward trends? Um, I would say that it probably, it's possible for it to, um, I would say that it probably doesn't. I would say that when you read someone's writing like mine and, you know, I'm highlighting for you that when you're looking at class, the subset of black Americans who are the wealthiest also happen to be the first and second generation immigrants, that the people who have gotten the most benefit from um, this particular branch of the affirmative action policy are first and second generation immigrants. Um, I, I was going to say that is that is like one of the sort of points that I, I've seen ADOS people make, but I think you're going in a different direction than them as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I. <laughs> How do I put it? I don't think that I'm that I am necessarily going in the same direction. Again, stumbling over my words. The issue is that ADOS people have talked to me in various ways, um, but I've never dove fully into the movement and all of the literature they're producing in all the camps. So I don't know where we're aligned and where we're not aligned. I think. At the low level, where we are aligned is that I do think um, that Black Americans uh, represent a specific ethnicity, um, that there is a culture there tethered to uh, Black Americans at different classes, and that a lot of times that idea is lost, at least at the policy level, where you get the feeling and sometimes this policy is at an institution. Sometimes the policy is happening at a pop culture industry. You get the feeling that there's no awareness of Black Americans being a specific ethnicity. And um, the policies kind of do a any Black person will do type of thing. And I think a lot of Black people who wouldn't necessarily be related to ADOS uh, feel this. For example, Keen Peel have a, a particular sketch where there's two black actors and one is literally a black American from the ghetto. And the other is a black British person who went to, um, you know, private schools and probably like the British equivalent of Juilliard. 
And the director is just loving everything that the black British guy is bringing to the role and has nothing but criticisms for the black American who actually grew up in poverty. And they're playing a character based off the black American. Um, so I get that part where I have no idea what ADOS wants is when it comes to like other policies or how they think reparations should be distributed or where they think uh, first and second generation black immigrants fit into policies that are meant to benefit black folks. Like I really don't know um, about any of that. And I know that I would also differ with them on some points because like my only concern is poverty, I guess, for the way my brain works, like I need to, <laughs> I need to choose some of the nuance from these things and be like, here is stuff that I know is terrible. I know that being born into a situation where you are exposed to starvation and uh, homelessness and all the vulnerability that comes with that is bad. And there are some um, African immigrant groups who come over here very poor. And so they're still in the same bucket of people that I care about. Right. But I, so, I mean, yeah. uh, to, to be fair, I mean, for also people that have lost the plot, uh, ADOS means uh, it's the American descendants of slavery. And I mean, mm. they do have a point in so much as there is a difference between, um, you know, a lot of black Americans experiences and black immigrant experiences. So I will give them that, but go on. Yeah, there's, um, this is something that I tried to give a little, um, a little uh, shout out in my Atlantic piece is that while, you know, I'm focused on uh, the communities that I come from, my critique really is applicable, at least the affirmative action piece, that critique is really applicable to most other groups, whether they're Hispanic or Asian. Um, and I, you know, mentioned that for Asian folks, not all of their ethnicities um, are very wealthy. And that if you were to look at Harvard, you would see the same sort of thing that I showed, which is, um, you know, over concentration of the upper and middle class earning groups in Asian America. Um, well, the same with African immigrants. There's certain immigrant groups from Africa, like they have uh, much lower rates of education. They don't make a lot of money and they're not getting any of these benefits either. And I would be equally concerned about them. Um, my core issue is just poverty. So it sounds like, you know, we can't make like the most broad generalizations about any of these things. It sounds like it gets very, you have to get into the nitty gritty, so to speak. Yeah, um, you definitely, <laughs> you definitely have to get into the nitty gritty. I mean, for me, a lot of times uh, when I think about the 2010s, it's um, it's kind of a lost decade for me because like during my lifetime, especially up till 2016, up 2016 is when you is for me where you start seeing a much more aggressive pushback. But there was a lot of years during the 2010s where it felt like there was this big reserve of empathy out there that people wanted to direct towards being on the right side of history. And most of that, as far as I was concerned, got absorbed by policies that didn't help the worst off. Um, and that's just, yeah, that's just like really upsetting to me. Um, you know, I, I'm not a pure cynic who thinks, ah, all those people were full of shit the whole time. And that's why, you know, 
they focused on like representation or other things that really only matter in pop culture, or they didn't dig into the class stuff. Um, I genuinely think people wanted affirmative action to help the worst off in black America. I think they wanted the Hulu watch lists and, you know, Wakanda forever and all these things to somehow be distributing money and resources to the black poor, but they just, they do not appreciate that class uh, functions for every group in America as a way of distributing the goods in our society. And so you, as long as our class system is there the way that it is, you can't just direct benefits to whoever you want. It's always going to be absorbed by the people with the most money. You go a little bit longer because I had a, a quite a few more questions. I don't know if you have some extra time. No, I got extra time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then one thing I wanted to ask you about was we sort of mentioned how when discussions of Black America come up, sort of class is sort of rendered invisible in a way, you know, like we don't talk about how there's, you know, a poor middle, uh, upper class in black America. Why, why is that so invisible? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I do have thoughts on it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot to unpack, but I, I would, I'll say this. Um, There's a few different forces. One force, you get this big change during um, Barack Obama's first presidency, where here's some of the things that changed prior to Barack Obama. And if you've had any black folks uh, on your show that are like, you know, older than 40, uh, they'll remember this. Um, but just reading from black history, there used to be this kind of uh, filtration process for being, you know, a black voice. And very often you had to rise up organizationally within a specific neighborhood. Maybe that's the South side of Chicago. Maybe, um, it's in Philadelphia. Maybe it's in Newark. Maybe it's in uh, the Bay area. Um, but you had to be known to black people first and you had to get to the head of black organizations first. And then after a period of time being there, you might get to the head of a very large organization and then that would put you at the point where you start talking to white America. Um, sometimes people like Malcolm X or other people from back in the day used to make fun of this unofficial position as being king of the Negroes. And you would get to this position of basically you've earned all the cred from the black side. And now you're kind of the one who tells white people what black folks need. In the late, you know, in the early 2000s, Barack Obama's first presidency, you see a lot of shifts happening. Um, the biggest one is that white folks who are liberal seeing the response to Barack Obama. Um, it really increases their interest in race issues. And to some degree, liberals have been interested in race issues for a long time, but now it's like it's front and center where you are in terms of race issues determines where you are in terms of the Democratic Party. It's determining whether or not we trust you as a Barack Obama supporter. It's getting to the point where it's like where you stand on race is really important because it distinguishes whether or not you're a racist. And that interest from this educated middle and upper class white audience 
the way that works all of a sudden now is that you don't have to rise up in a black neighborhood through a black church to the head of a black organization to eventually talk to this white audience because now the whole white audience is interested so all you have to do is get to the top of some part of popular culture and you get to talk to white people directly regardless of your credibility with black folks on the ground you can go straight to a white audience i, this- I was going to say too i, I remember um a while back, I spoke with Ishmael Reed, uh, the the playwright, and one thing that he said to me that stood out is, "You always, you always have to find, you know, a rich patronage uh, <laughs> to sort of give you the money to do any of this if you're going to be a voice within, you know, the the sort of commentary of black or otherwise, you know." One hundred percent, the patronage is real. Uh, you definitely need that. Um, so, to tie a bow on that. All of a sudden, so many white folks were interested in you that if you just are a black person who's able to navigate uh, higher education and these other things very well, you can get to a point where you talk to white people directly. The other issue is that, and people forget this all the time, minority is not um, a euphemism for non-white. We treat it like that, but it's a numerical designation. It is a fact that there are so few black people in America. The only way that every white person could have a black friend is if every black person in the country right now, including newborn black infants, had six white friends. So pop culture is literally the way most white Americans will learn about black folks. So This means whoever gets to those pop cultural platforms in novels, in television. Um, Politics has even become a little bit of a pop culture venture when you look at people like AOC. They're going to get to dictate for all of white people what black people want. And, you know, college sits kind of at the head of this. When we think of pop culture, we still have this idea of the arts, And there's still a lot of people who have this idea of the arts as somehow existing outside of, you know, the normal professionalization of uh, occupations. People still think about people coming to L.A. as like waitresses and stuff like that and making their big break. And they don't realize that almost all of the big actors currently are actually people who were child actors previously and mostly people whose parents could afford for one parent to like come out to LA with the kid while the other parent worked and novels, all college educated, normally elite college. Well, I was going to say, even, you know, I mean, the, the fact is with like art schools, you know, yeah. the people who get sent there the most are their sons and daughters of really rich people, you know, and they're they're It's, they serve a purpose in that way in the sense of they're sort of the tastemakers for class distinctions in a way. 100%. And, you know, as I say this, a lot of times people think that what I'm saying is like middle and upper class black people are in some way bad, or maybe their arts in fear or anything like that. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is that all of these things came together. Um, this white audience hungry for a connection to black people so that they could be on the right side of history. The fact that pop culture uses college as its application, um, its applicant pool meant that black middle and upper class black folks got to write the story from 2007 on about the black experience. And like anyone who doesn't grow up poor, they didn't know a bunch about black poverty. 
Black people also inherit this tradition, um, you know, of the talented 10th that goes back to W.E.B. Du Bois, where, and this has always been contentious, but it's the idea that the Black people who make it to the top are obligated to speak on behalf of the Black uh, lower classes. So a lot of Black folks are raised in this tradition if they're middle upper class that they're supposed to, you know, speak on behalf of other Black people. Uh, black folks also have a tradition of like trying to identify with the underclass. There was a big Pew study um, that came out maybe last year that asked uh, black folks, you know, do you have everything in common with this group? Most things in common next to nothing or completely nothing. Um, and surveying black folks who were, you know, in that top 20%, Around a third of them, if I have the numbers correct, thought that they had everything in common with the black poor, had no awareness of how class was like shaping things. Now, you go back to the year that uh, Obama was elected. Pew also did a study asking black folks, do you think the values of black folks in the poor class, the middle class have changed so much that they're so separate that it no longer makes sense to call black people the same race anymore. And, you know, a third of the respondents said our values are so different that we're no longer the same uh, group anymore. And the black poor were the most likely to say that our values had changed so much. So, like I said, it's a very winding set of factors, but all these do you, things. Do you think there's an issue where, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say this in like a, a way that demonizes anyone, but is there an issue where the experience of the black poor gets appropriated by people who aren't necessarily poor? Yeah. Uh-huh. 100%. Uh, <laughs> uh, I said as much to um, speaking, this was like two years ago, but I said as much speaking to Brianna Joy Gray and um, his last name's Young. I'm forgetting, unfortunately, if it's Vince Young or Nick Young, but uh, his uh, his site was, uh, I, I think, very smart, uh, very smart brothers, something like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's the case that I was making um, is that these experiences are appropriated because when you think about um, other marginalized groups, there's a lot of policing that happens around their experience. For example... Florida Project is a movie I like very, very much. And, you know, that movie is made by this dude, Sean Baker, who's a white guy who's, you know, solidly middle uh, to upper middle class, goes to art schools, all that. It's not his experience. But I think he pulls off the movie really well because it's a purely observational film. He doesn't try to get into the minds of any of the poor white folks that he's viewing. Nonetheless, Everybody was concerned about the class difference between them and talking about that. And we see this play out in a number of different ways. Um, we see it when folks who are able-bodied make films about uh, disabled folks. There's a lot of policing. When men make movies about women, there's a lot of policing. With Black folks, um, you can come from the middle and upper class. You can be a double Ivy where you did your undergrad at Columbia and you did your, you know, MFA at some place like Harvard. Um, and you can really make a movie about any segment of the Black experience. 
without any oversight, without any policing, without anyone asking for receipts showing that you actually communicated with the black poor, even though there's nothing magic about um, black people's awareness of class. Like if you don't grow up in that experience, you really don't know anything about it. And class hostilities in black America are real to where like, if you don't come from the black poor and you try to just go hang out in that neighborhood, like they can tell that you're not from there. And yeah, there's, there's just hostilities, but none of this is policed. Um, so uh, getting back to your point, yeah. Um, black people in the middle and upper class are allowed to appropriate those experiences. Um, when I said this to say Brianna Joy Gray um, and Mr. Young, they're both like, they're willing to cede that hypothetically it's possible that black middle and upper class folks do that, but they just didn't think it was happening. And um, sometimes the defense, not just that uh, Brand Joy Gray gave me, but that lots of people gave. This is a very common defense. It's kind of just like I have, you know, most black people who are middle or upper class have family members who are still in rural or urban poverty. And my issue with that is like I'm from <laughs> the poor family branch on both sides of my family, including the black poor branch uh, on the black side of my family. And it's like the wealthier middle-class cousins, they don't get to hang out with you very often because you often live in a more dangerous place. They're not there all the time. Um, maybe they visited a few times. And also this is not a defense that anyone else can use. If you're a straight person making movies or media about uh, gay folks, you can't say that your cousin is gay. Therefore, you have a window into that world. The only people who seem to be able to use that defense are Black people talking about why they can be upper class but still make films about the Black poor. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I've always said to people, I, I think, you know, class distinctions create like very real differences, but in the sense of, um, you know, if you're from an upper class background, you're really not interacting with people from, you know, much lower on the socioeconomic ladder. And that's just, you know, a fact of, I, I think, how our system is set up. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's 100 percent true. And there's different ways to, you know, to validate that, particularly. Um, Again, if you're working in a college educated, this is why I love that, or I don't love the statistic because it's unfortunate, but why that statistic about college graduation rates and class is so important, because it means that if you're in a college educated profession, you don't interact with hardly anyone who was raised in poverty. And with neighborhood segregation, it means that you also go home to a neighborhood that has almost no poor people in it. Um, really the only time you interact with a person who is poor is, you know, if there's homeless in your area or possibly if you're talking to some of the working poor, if you're friendly at like a Walmart or a Target or, um, say with the janitor at your, um, at your building, but you're completely isolated from them. And at the same time, all the ethnographic, uh, research that we have, anything anthropological that we have. I mean, I guess ethnography covers that. Um, any psychological research we have that looks at class repeats again and again and again that people living in poverty um, view things differently, 
They will develop values differently. They have different psychological responses to things. They rank needs differently. Um, all the research that we have is showing that class powerfully shapes you. Um, the other thing I'll point out is just the discrepancy in opportunities to tell your stories. Not a lot of people mention this, um, but because class shapes your culture so much to, you know, to create popular culture for a given class, you have to be able to speak to that class. When you're writing a narrative, you have to be able to, you know, demonstrate the emotion of that narrative. You have to have a logic in that narrative that makes sense to your audience. Um, poor black folks often don't know enough about the other classes to successfully produce popular culture for them. And sometimes people don't think this, um, you know, they don't really realize this because they'll be like, oh, but rap and hip hop and all these things is so popular. First off, a lot of rappers today are actually uh, not from the poor. Um, you can look up their backgrounds. Wikipedia is easily accessible. A lot of the most successful rappers right now are frequently ones who are from uh, the middle class. In a few occasions, upper, like Drake. Um, but the other thing is, just to cut to the chase, you can look up music like UK Drill or American Drill, where we know that these people are coming from the poorest segments of America. And you can look at their record and concert sales, and you can see that when it comes to people voting with their dollars, there's not a huge market for the people who are really conveying an impoverished Black experience using the language of that class culture. Most of the money goes to people, say like a Donald Glover or a Jordan Peele, who was raised middle class, um, mostly surrounded by a lot of white folks through much of their education. Uh, I, I was going to say too, not to interrupt you, but... Yeah. I, I think it's true. You could apply this to a lot of different groups, right? Like sure. I, I, I knew uh, like kids that identified as LGBT in college that were like middle and upper class. And the kids I knew from like a poorer background that were LGBTQ had very different experiences. So I think you could apply it to, you could apply this across many different groups of people. Um, and you definitely should. I think um, in terms of pop culture analysis, you know, something that comes to mind is, um, did you watch Beef by any chance? Oh, not familiar. Tell me a little bit. Uh, Beef is a Netflix show that has, um, what's it, Ali Wong and uh, I think it's uh, Steve Nguyen. Um, he was famous from, I, I hope I'm not messing up his name, um, but he was famous from like uh, The Walking Dead. Uh, Walking Dead, uh, Korean fellow, but the show addresses class. Uh, this, I mean, <laughs> the show is about like uh, a road rage incident that just gets out of control where these two people just keep messing with each other. Both of them um, Asian, but one is coming from the middle and then has moved to the upper class. One is like poor and working class and is like struggling as a general contractor. Um. But in the course of the show, and this is something that's happened several times um, with Asian media, is that these shows are very popular with a middle and upper class white audience in part because by making it about Asians, you're actually allowed to deal with just middle and upper class 
problems that white folks are interested in, or sorry, are familiar with. But the Asianness makes it, how do I put it? The Asianness makes it permissible. If it was just about white folks with money, then the show would be getting ridiculed. But in the course of the show, they talk about Karens, they have crypto bros, they have crazy wealth, they have uh, hostilities between upper class and working class people. And it is also a very Asian ethnic show. It goes into fights between the different ethnicities. I think it's a great show. It's very... Uh, I don't think they're using Asianists just as a... Uh, a smokescreen or anything like that. But the reason I bring it up is just to say that similar to your example about the LGBT uh, Q folks coming from different classes, most of the time when um, folks from these marginalized groups are making um, pop cultural media that the rest of us like, it's because they know something about the class of the audience that they're writing for, and they know how to translate to that audience. You mentioned, you know, the secret curriculum earlier. They've learned that curriculum because they come from that class. And if you don't know that curriculum, you can't make content uh, for these folks. And I'm not the first person to bring this up about... Um, Asian folks, I want to say there's been several other commentators who have noted there's been a lot of highly uh, praised um, novels over the past few years written by South and Southeast Asians that are identical to an upper class white female experience, but because the character is Asian and can speak to an Asian experience a little bit, it gets kind of this liberal cred, even though it's still about the life of a very, very wealthy person. I wanted to ask too about when we talk about, um, you know, uh, black opinion makers or uh, commentators within the black community, uh, it seems like there, there's at least a few more voices coming up like yourself. Um, where do you think the disagreements are or where, where do you think the critique is that that you have of maybe other commentators like a um a Ta-Nehisi Coates or maybe an, an Ibram Kendi. Um I mean no I'm I'm not getting yeah. I'm not like asking yeah, you to like no. sling mud either, you know, but no, I I I don't think you are. I mean um my main issue with them is that to that idea of appropriation. Um, Tanisa Coates, who's been very honest about this, it just gets into that sort of um, <laughs> uh, perceptual problem that white Americans have. Uh, Tanisa Coates has said many, many times that he is middle class. Both his parents are college educated. However, if you were to look up between the world and me right now, Wikipedia would be one of the first things that comes up. And within the Wikipedia article, it says Between the World and Me is about Ta-Nehisi Coates' experiences growing up poor because we need him to be poor to consider his opinion credible. And so it doesn't matter how many times he says he wasn't poor. He always gets perceived that way. Even Max Kennedy is also a middle-class Black uh, person. Um, my issues with their critique is just that they haven't used their influence at all to solicit more input from the black poor. And so somebody like Ta-Nehisi Coates, 
you know, most of the statistics he's used, um, whether it was coming from uh, the case for reparations, which had to do with redlining or the black family in the age of mass incarceration, those are statistics generated by the lives of the black poor. Um, to give, you know, a very clear cut example, um, for people my age, um, black women in poverty had almost the same incarceration rate as white women. Um, it's very, very close. White women don't get incarcerated very, sorry, women in general don't get incarcerated very, very often. Um, among black males, black males born to poverty like me had like four times the incarceration rate of black males born in the middle of the income distribution. Um, we have very different rates of these risks. Tanisi Coates in his article, you know, he um, Black Family Age and Mass Incarceration, he quotes himself that for uh, four out of every five Black prisoners was poor prior to going to prison. But just a few paragraphs down in his very eloquent way, and he's a beautiful writer, he says, you know, he sums it up as mass incarceration has basically affected all black people that it's, you know, he treats it as a miasma preying on black people at random. So he moves seamlessly from a statistic that says, oh, all of this problem, or at least 80% of it has preyed upon one class of black people. Paragraph down, he sums it up as a problem for all black people. And it's the summaries that people remember. And the same with Ibram X. Kendi, you know, whenever they're using these statistics, they really don't clue their audience in. They don't drive home the point that these statistics are mostly about the lives of the Black poor. They don't really do anything to solicit the Black poor or to increase the Black poor's chance to participate in any of these pop cultural mediums. Um, I can use, you know, Kendi as a specific history. He, uh, I'm sorry, Kendi as a specific example. He um, edited a community history of Black America that brought together all of these Black folks to write a different chapter in the book. Um, almost none of them came from poverty. He went through the same channels that everyone else goes through in academia, which is you find people who have college-educated credentials. So even when he has the chance to run a project, he's not, you know, he's not breaking down these class barriers. And so, uh, again, apologies for the long-windedness, but my issue with any of these folks is just that for their own credibility, they have to reference these stats, mostly drawn from the Black poor. Their work doesn't really do anything to increase the Black poor's ability to speak for itself. Their policy prescriptions are not normally drawn from speaking to the Black poor. Um, yeah, I think that about sums it up. Uh, somebody that I, you know, really, really liked was uh, Paulo Freire, who wrote, you know, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And one of the big points he makes in there is that you should expect that the oppressed will have a different vision of an ideal world than people from the middle or an upper class. And that if you're not prepared to accept that, you're essentially going into their lives like a missionary, you know? Um, so my problem with it, basically everyone coming from the middle and upper classes who might be like a Coates or a Kendi is just that they're they're not helping the black poor have a say in the solutions to their own political problems. And you know, me personally, I don't even know 
what all the other black poor would like because there's so few of us and there isn't a network of us and you know i can't just go to the barnes and noble and see the shelf that says writers from poverty i have no way of accessing this big collective thought from the other uh poor black folks there's an artificial scarcity last thing i want to touch upon and i'm, I'm glad you were able to expound on that with regards to figures like ta-nehisi coates and Eber max kennedy because uh yeah, I was reading an Atlantic piece by Kendi recently. Um, working class does not equal white. I think it came out a few days ago. Yeah, I thought. It, I mean, it's he's making yeah. a a good point. It's true. You know, working class class does not mean white, and we, the term is often used in a way where you know, working class is coded as just meaning white. And I he's right about that. But then I I'm not sure that he's actually engaging with you know working class or even poor black people a lot of times or doing things to advocate for them enough. I, my feeling towards Kendi and several other people is that in practice, their interest in the black poor is to use the black poor as a way of leveraging for the future that they themselves want. So Kendi has a vision and he's interested in the black poor so long as he can use their suffering as kind of a currency for getting to the future that he wants. The same with, say, Robin D'Angelo, a lot of other people in this group. I wouldn't put Coates necessarily in that group. Coates has always been when, very When you serious. say leveraging, you mean for their for career purposes or? So how do I put it? Let's say hypothetically that within the current economic system, like that you could keep American capitalism largely intact and still do certain things like get rid of exclusionary zoning laws. You could essentially keep this whole system and take the bite out of poverty. Now, a lot of poor black people, especially given their degree of patriotism, would sign on for that. A lot of them are not interested in a radical revisioning of the entire United States. I would argue that Kendi wouldn't be interested in that solution, even if poor black people overwhelmingly wanted it. He only wants a solution to the problems of black poor if that solution leads to his vision of America, which is a radical revisioning of how we look at everything having to do with race. You know, he's uh, suggested how we look at policies as either racist or anti-racist. Um, Robin D'Angelo is very similar. They're not interested in, I want to get poor black people, the thing that they want most, or I'm not, you know, the top of their, um, desire. So you're not making the argument that's all just a, a sort of careerist ploy either. I don't think it is just a careerist ploy i think there's a lot of um i think there's a lot of human messiness in there like i don't think this is pure pure gamesmanship or house of cards type stuff i think even max kendy is you know he is a human he had passions and a dream he probably has a ton of empathy he wants his work to matter and move the needle on Issues. I think he probably does genuinely want the world to be a better place. 
Um, all those things are mixed in. I'm sure some part of him knows that if he doesn't maintain his position um, relative to book sales and Netflix deals and things like that, then he will not have as much say over how policy unfolds. I'm sure some part of him is aware of that, but also he probably engages in the same human, you know, rationalizations as everyone else. Um, so I don't think it's purely, uh, yeah, I don't think it's purely careerist. I just think it's very important to acknowledge, yeah, to, to acknowledge that these folks are not necessarily ambassadors for the poor. I don't even know if, I think this whole ambassador model that Americans often have is probably, you know, a problem because for a very long time, we've just had this assumption that, well, if well, somebody- it's, it's, it's a very, I mean, I'll be blunt with it. It's, it's like a very, I'll use the word fucked up model because, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, yeah, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, Caitlyn gender, uh, Caitlyn Jenner <laughs> speaks for all, you know, trans people, especially poorer trans people who I've known in, you know, the city of Pittsburgh where I'm from, uh, originally, you know, I don't think, you know, Ibram Kendi speaks to all poor black, like, why aren't we allowing people from poorer backgrounds speak for themselves? I guess that's what I'm getting at. And, um, like, yeah. why do they need ambassadors? We should allow them to speak. You know, I agree with you. The case that I would, uh, that I want to make is that the reason um, we're not pushing for that is because we don't know what's needed because we're still living in this space where we think Ibram X. Kendi has privileged knowledge to what the black poor need because we're still living in a world where because of how somebody like Atanahisi Coates writes, we think all black people are exposed to the things that we would name as the black oppressions, a near equal amount. And so all of them are in the position to say what we should do about it. Um, and until we really appreciate how class alters black experience, I don't think we can create the demand for black poor people to um, speak for themselves. I think if all of a sudden uh, poor black people had perfect representation in uh, colleges, I think the discourse would change overnight, especially because, you know, going back to certain histories, uh, I'm not saying class hostility is good. But there is a lot of class hostility in the history of Black Americans. I mean, um, the slang term bougie is a, a Black American device used mostly to slander Black people from the middle and upper classes. So um, you would immediately see this big clash of values if there were more poor Black people who uh, made it in onto these platforms. And uh, it would... Yeah, it would dramatically change this course. I mean, you may know this yourself or may um, know it from other people or things you've read. But like when you're coming from poverty, your priority list is normally pretty closely tethered to those basic necessities. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know you've talked about it on other shows, but um, I and if this is like going into personal stuff, and you don't want to talk about it. That's fine. But um, what was your experience like in university? Just sort of because, like you said, you know, you came from this background of poverty, whereas these other students didn't necessarily come from that background. So w w maybe you could talk about that experience and maybe some of the debates you ended up having with people. 
Um, yeah, no, I, I don't have a problem <laughs> talking about it. I actually think, um, I think more people in the academic circle should be humanizing themselves, reminding people that they're not just uh, objective observers, that they actually bring a lot of biography to this. So for me personally, it was a trip. It was very strange to, um, it was strange to find out that nobody knew that me and these other black folks were different, that somehow all that class knowledge didn't exist. That was kind of a trip. It was also very, I, I think you said in one of your interviews that, you know, some of the, the white students didn't know what to say when there was a, you know, difference of opinion yeah. between you and other black students. Yeah. So going to this ambassador model, which, you know, just kind of makes uh, a kind of easy brute sense. And it happens in white America too. It's part of why for a long time to become like a president and get the white votes, you were supposed to either dress like a cowboy or, you know, be doing campaign speeches in front of a brewery. You had to kind of look like you were coming from a certain group because Americans had this idea that like, we like to think that our self-interest is so strong that we wouldn't hurt the group that we come from. And we don't always appreciate like, no, the ambassador can have self-interests that do not align with the group that they come from. It happens all the time. Um, so I'm in this class and I have black students um, who, you know, I can tell come from the black middle and upper classes um, speaking on behalf of, you know, what's really the black poor. And then I have white students nodding along because of that empathy, because of that desire to be on the right side of history and to learn from this moment. And, you know, me very immaturely, I will decide to spoil the moment and I will engage in a bit of credentialing saying, you know, I was raised in foster care. Maybe I start the story off with how my dad was blood and in prison for murder. Um, I, I remember you talking about in the, I think it was with um, John Wood Jr. from Uniting America. There was yeah. like a debate about, I think crack houses that came up. Yeah. What, what uh, was that about? Um, I'm trying to remember specifically what I told John, but it's more about they were referencing that experience and trying to say like what a person might want out of life having that experience. And I'm like, that is not your priority list when you're living in a crack house. These things are not concerns to a person who is living in a building that's slowly being boarded up by their parents because they're in the midst of a, you know, crack adult delusion. And when I would say this in the middle of the class, the white students who, again, because black folks are a minority, haven't actually had enough experiences with black people to see a multitude of black opinions. And they've only been reading books and watching uh, television produced by black people who are all from the same class. They don't know what to do here. And the other black students haven't actually experienced arguing with a black person from a different class than them. And they don't have an argument in their back pocket for when this comes up because they're used to either the white folks deferring to them or being able to just call that white person ignorant. Um, so the air would just be kind of dead silent. Um, right. They, they can't really, it sounds like they couldn't really uh use authenticity as there as the currency whereas you could yeah which also made me feel bad um because 
I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm not interested in maintaining the definition of authentic black or real blackness as how many of the stereotypical traumas have you experienced? I don't like that. And I've had to do that credentialing a lot of my life because, you know, my part of South Jersey, there were times where I was in a lower middle class or a solidly middle class neighborhood. And in those neighborhoods, blackness is graded by skin color and how you speak. Um, a lot of times people don't know the nuances of how culture works for a person who is black and white. Um, in my case, my mom was basically the only white person um, and everyone else was black. But a lot of times your mom is the person you converse with the most. So I get a lot of my language, my voice from my mom. But then every father figure I had was black. All my friends were either black or mixed with black. And even my one white friend, his stepdad was black. So when I go to these middle class areas, I'm light skinned and I have, you know, I don't have the black scent. I'm not dropping particular vowels or adding them when I should. And they're basing how black they think I am off of just skin color. Their idea of blackness is, well, how black do the white kids treat you as? And so I would have to engage in this credentialing game. But it always felt really shitty because when this black student in a middle class area finds out that, oh, I have the mother with the drug problem and I have the dad who is a gang member and has been in prison and I have all of these other marks of authenticity. All I did was like kind of destabilize their identity and then they feel bad. And then I also feel bad. It's it's not fun. Um, but, you know, back to your point, going through graduate school is just lonely. Um, at everyone that I... Um, you know, there's, there's like a last line in poverty and instability where like, you actually can't stay there for very long. If you do as a kid, um, you're either going to die, end up permanently in the system or just kind of vanish, you know? And I had kind of been at that last rung and the other people I met, I met were from there. And those were really the people that I got along with, um, for whatever reason, I was very okay with the chaos of that kind of bottom rung of society, but it's very damaging. Most people who live there long enough will end up with issues that prevent them from reintegrating. And so as I'm moving just through high school, my the, the people I relate to, the people that I don't feel weird around are dropping out. And then I go to college and then I go to graduate school and they're just kind of all gone. I know where they are. They call me. They call me because they're still ending up in county. Um, they're still, you know, dealing with deaths of despair and things like that. And at the same time that I'm dealing with all that, and I know where all the poor black folks are, people are celebrating all this representation that is happening in uh, popular culture for black folks as if this is some big win, you know, uh, back in 2021. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi said we were in the midst of the third Black Renaissance in art. People were actually, you know, basically doing a victory lap. And they were suggesting that all of these things were benefits to the Black poor. And people would come up to me and ask me, had I read this person? Had I watched this movie? Really thinking that because I was so open about my background, that these were like big landmark achievements that meant something to me. And uh, 
all the while I know that like my actual peers, my class peers are just dying. Um, so that, it, that's what's interesting lonely. about it because for as much as there is this diversity and representation we see in media more and more, I, I think the black poor really, it, well, I think the poor in general, but just if we're going to focus on the black poor, they remain visible. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, I can only be frank about it. You know, part of my career, you know, the value of a witness isn't some, you know, unique characteristic that they've earned or spent time developing. The, their, their value is just that they were there to see something. And there are millions of black folks like me who have seen all the same stuff as me. But because I made it through and they didn't, and there's an artificial scarcity uh, for people like me, I have this whole writing career. And um, yeah, they're just, they're, to your point, they're just, uh, they're, they're very invisible. And it seems as if they get more invisible because people are so sure that they don't need to talk to anyone in any black person in poverty, they don't need to actually go there and talk to them or create inroads for them to get their perspective. They can just watch whatever black watch list has been, uh, you know, printed on social media. Last thing I promised to let you go after this, but I know you said that like you weren't interested in, in like using authenticity as currency. You even use the sort of air quotes when talking about that, that term authenticity. Um, do you think there's a downside to the way our culture sort of values this, I guess, idea of authenticity as a currency? I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but. Um, I don't know if, uh, if this is answering your question correctly, but I do. I, how do I put it? Um, I do think there's downsides. I can speak to, you know, what I think are some of them. First off, um, how do I put it? You know, there's that idea that gets bandied about a lot that, you know, uh, race is a construct. People still say that race is a construct. Um, growing up, you know, with a white half of my family and a black half of my family and being integrated pretty, you know, visiting both pretty frequently. Um, and then having a lot of friends who are also black and white, who are also in contact with both sides of their family. I got to see the differences, but I got to see how much overlap there is. And I got to see like, <sighs> poor American is a culture and it's just like, there's so much overlap. There's little things, food things change, but uh, you know, <laughs> if you were to uh, show up on a Sunday at a black poor house in the Northeast and then go to a white poor house in the Northeast, same Sunday, most of the activities are the same. The football, the sports, all the stuff they're doing is pretty much the same. Their general values are very often the same. Um, and because of that, because of how much American identity is really what class you're from, the reality as I see it is that Black middle-class Americans and Black upper-class Americans and when I say their identity, their culture, I mean the day-to-day -day stuff. Where do you buy your groceries? Where do you hang out? 
What hobbies did you get to do? What sports did you get to play in high school? What clubs were available in your school? Did you go on vacations or not? The actual stuff that makes up 365 days a year, there is so much overlap between what black middle-class kids experience and black white kids experience. And the unfortunate thing is because of the- You said black, you, you meant middle-class white kids or- Sorry, there's so much overlap, sorry for the misspeak, so much overlap between what white and black kids who are both in the middle class experience that when you get to college, the identity shit sucks because the only identity that will be available to this black kid where they can be considered not just authentically black, but they might actually get some social currency for it is to have the markers that I have. So they're kind of stuck in this place where they're not from poverty and they didn't have those experiences. So if they were to put on kind of the black um, street identity, it's fake, you know, and what a terrible life to have to like just pretend to be something else that sucks. But if they just admit that they like a bunch of middle class stuff and that they're not that different from the black, you know, the white middle class kids, well, now they're the white black guy or the white black girl or the Oreo or what have you. Um, so it, it becomes an issue where you're I think when it comes to this issue of authenticity, I, I think it, it's almost like turning authenticity into this like social currency forces people to have to perform quote-unquote authenticity and i think it's yeah. it's just kind of it's hurtful to everyone in some ways uh i agree with you i mean the performance is hurtful it's also because like <laughs> i think humans are to such a strong degree social creatures that we we're not constantly aware of the performance and you end up with people really believing it like i think this gets back to a lot of the spokesmen for uh or the spokespeople for Black America, I do think that they are believing their performance. I do think many of them do start to think that the actual risk rates of incarceration don't matter. The actual murder rates don't by class don't matter. They really start feeling as if, you know, they're a part of this oppressed group experiencing the same things that the Black poor are experiencing. I think they start taking the performance seriously. And that has other effects, you know? Um but the authenticity game, yeah. Uh, I've often wished that the several middle-class Black folks who made it through um, had kept their original identities. Like when Donald Glover first broke through was when, you know, Black nerd and that portmanteau blurred was happening all the time. And I wish he had been part of carving out an identity for just Black middle-class kids. Um, but as he goes towards Atlanta, he kind of gives that up and he starts giving in to the idea that all black people are in the same experience. Well, I want to let you get going, but what do you hope that my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having for the past, I guess, hour and 45 minutes now? <laughs> Thank you for saying, st staying so long, by the way. Yeah, no problems. Other than um, I hope they sense my appreciation for them staying through to the end. And let me work all this out. Um, what I would hope they'd get is just if they do, if they are for whatever reason interested in some of the worst experiences in America and they think it's important to know what those experiences are, if they think 
It's important for people having those experiences to have self-determination that in whatever ways they're trying to participate um, with the black poor, that they just do a few extra steps to make sure that the person that they're speaking to actually um, represents that experience and that they, they should even, you know, Take me, for example, I hope if they read my work, they like it, but they should counterbalance my work against any like Pew survey that maybe has asked a hundred or a thousand poor black people, you know, what their opinions on policy issues are. So I guess the short version is just treat class as real in black America. And if you're trying to, you know, get a window into that, do some due diligence and find out if somebody, you know, really is coming from the black poor. You, I, I'm just curious because I, I forgot to ask it earlier, but um, do, do you ever feel like there's like a whole cognitive dissonance when talking about this in the sense of, you know, on one hand, I've often heard it said, well, you know, black America is not a monolith. You know, that term is used a lot. Yeah. But it seems like we, even though we say that, you know, so many people in the media sphere say that it's still treated as a monolith in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's a um, cognitive dissonance is the word that I was looking for earlier. There is a lot of cognitive dissonance so that what we end up with is that these phrases are not taken as serious concepts. What they become is social etiquette. It is good etiquette to say that not all Black Americans are the same. It is good etiquette to say not all Black Americans are poor. It is good etiquette to say that um you know the black experience has lots of different communities at the same time you have been taught in many different ways to think that there's how do i put it the way the circle has gone is that you've been taught to say those things that those are polite but over here you've been taught to think that all black people face a greater risk of unemployment just across the board that they all face that same risk. They all face the same risk of incarceration. They all face the same risk of uh, concentrated poverty. They, we go down the line and eventually we get to a point where, you know, many of your listeners have read a couple dozen articles that have told them a different thing, environmental uh, pollution, environmental injustice that afflict black people. And the person writing that wasn't careful to keep class in their mind and was saying it as if that affected all black people. So you end up with these people, um, these folks, some who may be your listeners who have learned on the etiquette side, not all black people are on the monolith, but they've also been given this education that each thing that makes up the black experience is treated as if it affects all black people. So when they think of the black experience, class doesn't exist. When they're told to think about the experience, black people are on a monolith and they just walk around with both of these. Do you, do you think this is even true when we talk about like, say, um, like, you know, the the killing of George Floyd. I mean, I think a lot of people forget. I mean, I, I think George Floyd came from a very socioeconomically difficult background, but yeah. I don't see people make reference to that a lot, you know. Um, they don't. Um, he's from the CUNY Homes Projects. Um, and that was something, you know, that I mentioned specifically. Uh, I've mentioned several podcasts, but I mentioned it also in my current affairs piece. One of the ironies here when we're focusing on popular culture, which was the focus of that piece, is that 
the jobs and initiatives that are being established in George Floyd's honor would not be available to George Floyd or anyone coming from the CUNY Homes Projects because they're all meant for college-educated folks. And George Floyd got part of the way on an academic scholarship, but ultimately, you know, fails out or has to leave for reasons you can imagine. It happens to a lot of people coming from poverty. Um, but yeah, people don't appreciate those particulars most of the time, um, which is a problem because then when they come up with these diversity policies, there's no mention of class. Um, yeah. In other words, the people most at risk, you know, which do come from, you know, the black poor aren't always the ones being represented in the initiatives. I mean, absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, this is, and this is the other part of this, again, getting to the human element is that this isn't fun to parse through. You don't want to tell someone who's having a bad time, socially speaking, that you are having a bad time, but also this person's having a worse time. And it's important for me that it's important for us that you keep in mind that you're having a bad time and someone else is having a worse time. So to give an example, you know, in response to Dave Chappelle and his uh, jokes towards trans people, um, those strikes focus their energies and the attention on getting more um, jobs for trans folks in the Netflix writing room. And when you read through those reports, you know, they're leveraged there. What I've sometimes in my writing called the currency of suffering, um, because we use these statistics that capture suffering as a political currency. Um, they showed all of these stats showing the homicide rates of trans folks. But what was left out of that discussion as they were using that leverage is that if you look up and you can do this, it's very depressing, but you can do it because trans Americans are such a small population. So their total number of homicides is normally less than, you know, 60 or 70, um, but it's a lot for their small population. You can look up each one and you'll find almost all of them are concentrated in poverty um, and are very often trans folks of color. So you have them creating the statistic through their deaths that these strikers at Netflix are using to show why Dave Chappelle's jokes are harmful. And the thing that they want as compensation is just jobs at Netflix. And it's not clear to me that the deaths of those poor trans folks should have been used as leverage to get that specific public good. I'm not trying to draw this out, but I also, and I, I want to be uh, polite in wording this. Do you worry that, do you ever worry that that you're going to be put in that sort of um, like this sort of suffocating box of, oh, well, you're you're an ambassador to the black poor as a commentator writing about these issues? Because um, I, I from yeah. what I'm gathering, you don't even necessarily want to be seen as just the ambassador. You know, you sort of want uh, more people to have a voice rather than you're having to speak for them. So um, I do worry about that. And I've also learned from other. I've, I've learned from Ta-Nehisi Coates that you can say something till you're blue in the face and it can be about you and your identity and people won't grasp it. Right. So people outside of that are going to put that identity on you, whether. Yeah. Yeah. So 
the best I can do in terms of honesty. And, you know, if I ever lose this, people will hopefully uh, ridicule me and keep me honest, but is to keep telling people that I'm not an ambassador to keep, you know, pointing towards, you know, when I am given the opportunity to speak, to keep pointing towards surveys that actually talk to black people, to keep reminding people that like lived experience is not permission to speak for a whole group of people that surveys do exist, that, you know, group ethnographies do exist. I mean, I can keep pointing that direction. And, you know, if I'm freakishly lucky and at some point, you know, somebody wants to just give me um, Ibram X. Kenny money, uh, I can try and do a better program that actually won't use college as the selection device for the applicant pool. But that's uh, basically all I can do about that worry is try to keep reminding people I'm not an ambassador. And if somebody gives me money, um, try to use it better than other people have. Well, hey, Bertrand Cooper, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. How can I, how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? You're on Twitter, right? Or X or whatever it's called now. (laughs) Whatever it's called, I'm on it. Um, At underscore Black Trash. uh, That's where I list anytime I'm on a podcast, anytime I have writing come up, um, coming up, I'll always announce it on there. So uh, yeah, that's the best way to keep up with the work. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bertrand Cooper. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.